And I guess uh, I should explain that I'm generally sort of newbie to the history of medicine and what I'm presenting is kind of a work in progress, so your comments and suggestions are very welcome. Um, I got a bit sidetracked from a project that I had originally envisioned being focused on natural history and zoology, um, instead spent hours reading about cows and pigs, slaughterhouses and dairy yards, rotting meat and milk contaminated with excreta. Um, and I, I can imagine, as you can imagine, I've never become so close to becoming a vegetarian. No, not quite. Um, so I hope my paper doesn't ruin your dinner, but I won't make any promises. Um, essentially, um, as, as Laura pointed out, what I'm going to talk about today has to do with uh, relationships between humans and animals, and specifically how uh, the animal economy, as I would call it, of the city of Dublin in the 19th century um, affected public health policy and practice. So I'm going to look at ideas uh, around contagion and germs that were brought uh, up with various epidemics in both humans and animals um, over three time periods, uh, first 1849 to 1865, um, which is basically encompasses the Dublin Improvement Act and the Cattle Plague, um, or before the Cattle Plague, and then 1865 to 1874, which uh, encompasses the Cattle Plague, two cholera epidemics and a problem with smallpox, and then finally 1874 to 1880, which is kind of the run-up to the sewerage and drainage inquiry where um, increasing concerns about Dublin's death rate um, are being voiced. Um, where the, I suppose, the diseases of concern I'll be talking about are contagious bovine pleuropneumonia, which sounds like fun, doesn't it? Um, and smallpox uh, as well. And essentially, I want to argue that there's some evidence for a shift in ideas over this time period um, for both how animals are viewed and how their impact on public health is understood. Um, so in particular, there's a slow but perceptible shift away from a focus on disease in dead animals and thus slaughterhouses and meat um, to one that suggests that disease passage by living animals should be a priority, so uh, a focus on dairy yards and milk. Um, and I, d I don't think this shift has really happened by 1880, and um, if I was going to go further, uh, the kind of debates of around tuberculosis, bovine tuberculosis would be very important. Um, and I suppose the starting point in some sense is, is Mick Warboy's work on cattle plague um, and that its contribution to um, the acceptance of ideas about contagionism. Um, uh, and his argument that veterinarians and, and medical men sort of took different paths um, in terms of how they viewed uh, disease, uh, with veterinarians advocating uh, a, stamping out uh, a stamping out culling and compensation policy where animals were essentially uh, quarantined and then slaughtered, um, and having little interest in, in vaccination. Uh, whereas doctors and sanitarians, obviously, no matter how much they might have wished, could hardly urge the same thing on diseased persons. Um, and I suppose Warboys is largely concerned with how contagion and germ theories um, spread among medical practitioners and the effects of bacteriology and laboratory medicine. Um, and he sees the 1870s as a key period for the beginning of acceptance of germ theories and, and how they affect practice in public health, um, although other writers have suggested that there's resistance to these practices up into the, well into the 20th century. Um, and I suppose I'm looking at it from a kind of different angle. I'm interested in how attitudes towards animals and animal disease played into debates about public health, um, and also how the, particularly how the idea, the spread of ideas about germs uh, affect and were affected by um, how public health officials dealt with animals. And I've chosen the cow for looking at this um, because I think uh, it's quite obvious the ways in which people categorized cows according to how they were used um, sort of lays bare a lot of um, uh, these ideas. 
And I suppose the bigger questions that I'm interested in overall, um, and you can judge for yourself how well I've addressed them by the end of the talk, is how did scientific ideas affect public health policy and practice, and uh, how did ideas about animals, and so ideas like what the boundary between human and animal is, what, um, how people categorize different species of animal, how they categorize different animal products or industries, how do these ideas affect public health policy and practice? Um, so I'm going to start by talk, explaining a little bit about a nuisance, um, what a nuisance is, because that relates something to the substance of my paper. Um, I'm going to give you a very speedy overview of the sanitary administration in Dublin so that um, hopefully that will help you to follow uh, the rest of the talk. And then I'm going to go through my three periods and then return to those bigger questions at the end. Um, and if I, if I have time, I'm going to do a very cheeky uh, call for help on some maps I did relating to this project um, that are not directly related to the, to the substance of the talk. And I suppose overall, um, I'm, I'm looking at uh, and arguing about how ideas about germs were received in relation to ideas about um, animals. Um, and I'm going to suggest that instead of cattle plague, that actually pleuropneumonia becomes a much more important disease in how, um, in how people view germ ideas in Dublin um, and the, the kind of changing perceptions of what should be done with urban animals in that context. Um, okay. So sorry, that's my uh, my overview. Okay, so a nuisance. Um, you need to know what a nuisance is. You probably already do, but in case you don't, a nuisance actually becomes a very specific legal entity under um, public health uh, legislation. Um, but it stems from a very old idea. Um, and it kind of evolves over the 19th and 20th centuries, moving further and further away from the old idea, which is based on, on medieval practice and then common law, um, of the idea of a nuisance as simply something that annoys your neighbors, um, and to a more specific idea of something that is supposed to endanger or may endanger health. Um, and I like this quote from Tom Crook um, discussing the early modern sense of the term uh, as, quote, disorderly inns and eavesdropping neighbors were as much nuisances as unwholesome waterways and ill-managed pigsties. And of course, over the course of the 19th century, that really changes um, to things, uh, to much more focus on unwholesome waterways and ill-managed pig advice, although you do occasionally get complaints about noise and such. Um, and germ theories of disease and later specifically identified germs begin to gain wider acceptance, um, and these ideas also begin to change the nature of a nuisance. So the most obvious example of that is in humans, uh, where you have the emergence of people and corpses uh, containing uh, contagious disease as they're perceived uh, really becoming treated as nuisances where there are laws regulating their interment uh, in rapid uh, order and the disinfection of houses and such. Um, cows also reflect this shift in thinking about nuisances from something that annoys by smell, sight, and sound, although that's very persistent uh, all through the 19th century, I'd say, to something that specifically endangers health. Um, and I guess what I'd like to suggest is that more than a movement from kind of environmental concepts to germ concepts, there's really a movement in focus from dead and decaying things to living things, um, and that that might be a better way of, of looking at the question. Okay. So this is a bit complicated, um, and I don't want to get bogged down in it, but um, it's sort of good to keep in mind. So essentially, there's two bodies in Dublin that are responsible for various aspects of sanitation. The city council is principally the body responsible. It's first designated as the urban nuisance authority and then later designated the sanitary authority when that changes in 1866. Um, and it, this is essentially run through what's the public health committee. It starts off as committee number two, and then under new legislation, it becomes the public health committee. Um, 
and then uh, it starts off quite small uh, in terms of the employees actually charged with sanitation. So um, it begins with you know around half a dozen, including a medical officer of health um, and a, a um, chief nuisance inspector who's also the secretary. Um, and then uh, they add a city analyst, they add uh, police constables who are essentially co-opted and then paid by the city council. Um, from the police force. And this expands and expands. So in 1864, they've got about six people. Uh, then in 1877, we've got 14 sanitary inspectors. These are all police officers um, in the pay of the city council at various ranks. Um, and then they add inspectors of food under Food and Drug Acts and, and other um, adulterated food inspectors, meat inspectors. Um, so in essence, they're dealing with, and the paving issues, which are sometimes associated with public health uh, committees in their constitution before the sanitary acts um, get pushed into a different committee. Um, and they don't actually have anything to do with the provision of water, just the provision of sewerage. So the poor law unions are the other bodies that are often tasked with things related to public health. And so these are really um, uh, under the medical sanitary officers or the dispensary doctors. Um, and they kind of, some of them draw a dual salary. They get money from the unions, but also they get a, a salary as medical sanitary officers under the city council. Um, and you can get them appealing to the city council to demand their extra 25 pounds. Um, I should mention the medical officers of health and the chief nuisance inspector very well paid. There's 200 to 300 pounds a year. So they're, they're quite high level individuals. And then um, as the cattle diseases uh, acts come through, that gets assigned to the poor law unions. And so um, they have veterinary inspectors, uh, one for each union. And this is where, as you'll see, the conflict uh, starts to come up. So in a sense, we could see the assignment of the, of the uh, animals, uh, the living animals, I suppose, to the poor law union is almost in, in parallel to their policing of um, the appearance of fever in fever hospitals and reporting on epidemics. They're doing essentially the same thing in animals. Um, and as we'll see, this, this uh, causes some conflict with the city council. If anyone's dying to get that down, I can go back to it at the end. Um, so the first period I would call the evils of the slaughterhouse, um, where the focus really in this period from the Dublin Improvement Act to before the cattle plague is on slaughterhouses. Um, and while the cattle are kind of divided into these three categories, uh, the principal concern is with carcasses. Um, so just very, very briefly, um, I'm sure the number of cows in 19th century Dublin doesn't keep you awake at night, but it certainly did keep a lot of public health reformers awake at night. So just so we have some idea of the numbers we're talking about, we've got about 100 to 110 slaughterhouses in Dublin, private slaughterhouses. Um, I was disappointed to hear read in the newspaper that the, uh, one of the last places that I know that still had abattoir equipment left over from the 19th century and in use in the 20th century has closed recently um, on Camden Street. But anyway, Anyway, there were about 100 to 110, um, uh, but a lot of these, 20 to 30 of these, are used for pigs only, and those are only sla slaughtered in cold uh, months to avoid taint when they're being um, processed. So really 80 locations, plus or minus uh, unlicensed places, um, are slaughtering cattle. Um, and these are slaughtering um, because they have to report how many animals they're slaughtering, which I'm sure is an underestimate. Um, they're slaughtering about five or six cattle a week, so a total of 300. 500 cattle in the city. Um, 
And uh, dairy yards, it's harder to keep track of because they didn't need to be licensed. Um, but if you look at the number of um, men and women reporting themselves as working in, in the industry, uh, from the 1851 census, for example, you've got 596 men, 231 women uh, reporting occupations as dairy keepers and milk dealers. And various people reporting to commissions claim that there's somewhere upwards of 500 uh, places selling milk, and about half or more than half of these are keeping cows. Uh, the cows, the number of cows, anywhere between 2,000 and 7,000, depending on who you ask and how hysterical they are. I think probably 4,000 is, is a reasonable estimate, somewhere in the middle. Um, and then, of course, you've got the market selling about 1,000 to 3,000 cattle a week. And of course, there's overlap because, of course, the, the butchers are buying cattle in the markets as well. Um, and uh, often, uh, sad dairy cows are being sold in the market uh, for meat. OK. So how did public health practitioners view cattle during in the city during this period? And as I said, I'd say there are three categories. There's carcasses, there's dairy cows, and there's market cows. Um, so uh, this is an anachronistic cartoon. I apologize. It's from the 1870s uh, at the verge of the uh, Second Anglo-Afghan War, which is why. But it's a good character of a butcher, and this kind of figure comes up quite a lot. OK, so public health enemy number one is this uh, giant carcass of a, of a cow. Um, and its accomplice is, of course, this uh, unscrupulous, uh, greedy um, butcher who will sell you anything uh, that he can possibly get away with. And these are really the highest priority for their ability to cause public health hazards or what's perceived as hazards in this period. So they're associated with miasmatic smells from discarded parts stuffed down sewers or left to rot in yards, and potentially the source of diseased flesh causing illness. Uh, and of course, they're associated with, this, uh, with the barbarous and wealthy butchers. Um, and I'd say that uh, you know, the butcher really has a status barely above that of the village executioner. Um, and if you look at uh, Jimmy Kelly and Martin Powell's work from the 18th century, butchers are associated in Dublin, uh, particularly with gangs, with violence, with thuggery. Um, and while they've lost uh, that edge for the most part in the 19th century, they still uh, retain a kind of uh, vaguely um, socially deviant tinge, I suppose. Um, and of course, they become very wealthy, some of them, in the, the 19th century, and uh, their influence in local politics could be quite formidable. Um, the second public health enemy is uh, the dairy cow. I'm afraid this is a French painting, not, a, not an Irish one, um, uh, with its accomplices, the dairy maid or the dairy man and the pig. Um, and the, the concerns about dairy cows are really, in this period, uh, their ability to produce smelly manure um, and to sustain pigs on slops, uh, which is viewed generally as a bad thing to do. Um, milk adulteration begins to be a concern, but it's really not from the point of view of disease. It's really from the idea of fraudulent practice, you know, passing off milk that's watered down, um, which might, have, uh, might not be sustaining to people. Um, and I suppose, finally, uh, we have our cattle market, and this is actually a later photograph of the Dublin cattle market as it's moved um, to the North Circular Road. Um, and it's sort of, uh, I like that it's empty of cows because that's about how much concern the Public Health uh, Committee had with cows in the cattle market. No interest really at all. It comes under the Markets Committee. Um, it's not within their remit, um, and they don't see this as a public health concern in, in any way. Okay. Um, so. 
the, before the Dublin Improvement Act even, uh, slaughterhouses had been considered, long considered, uh, on a list of obnoxious trades, including boil, bone boilers, knacker yards, anything producing a lot of smell. Um, and for example, in 1847, the sanitarian Thomas Anticell warned that, quote, sulfuretted hydrogen produced by decaying animal matter in slaughterhouse yards, uh, he claimed if you placed a bird inside the slaughterhouse yard, it would be dead within a week uh, just from the fumes. So it's a very much a miasmatic uh, environment type nuisance and slaughterhouses are considered among the worst potential animal nuisances in the city. Um, so start, shortly after the Improvement Act is passed, a special committee of the corporation considering its implications concludes that, quote, a great benefit to general health and cleanliness uh, was likely to result from the establishment of abattoirs and the removal of slaughterhouses from closely inhabited districts. Um, and we submit the early attention of the council should be directed to the important subject. Of course, they did no such thing, um, but they do begin a rigorous system of inspection and licensing, and between 1849 and 1865, um, they begin inspecting slaughterhouses for sanitary violations, which are largely concerned about how they dispose of their waste, um, and they collect the reports of the numbers of beasts slaughtered, and they have three sanitary inspectors, basically, who a large proportion of their time is devoted to, to walking around and turning up at slaughterhouses. Um, they also license new premises, um, and they do occasionally turn down slaughterhouses for licensing based on uh, water and sewage being insufficient, ventilation lacking, premises being too close to other houses, um, or the entryway through a living quarters, um, which happens quite a lot. Um, and essentially, the primary concerns are to minimize accumulations of manure and offal um, and to encourage encourage the use of water um, and appropriate drainage. There's no actual policy of eliminating them from the city, although it does come up, it is debated, um, but in fact they don't, uh, they don't decide to make that a policy. Um, one example, I suppose, is um, that in um, 1856 you have a, a, a group of uh, residents uh, furnishing a medical opinion uh, trying to prevent the licensing of a slaughterhouse in their neighborhood, claiming that it would, quote, be a public nuisance and most prejudicial to the health of all in its immediate neighborhood, um, but the council decide that the premises are, quote, most admirably adapted for a slaughterhouse, and they grant approval, and they're not even deterred by the fact that the neighborhood has various other slaughterhouses, quote, in a, a most disgraceful condition, um, and further appeals uh, produce no result. So there's an implicit acceptance that slaughterhouses might cause disease or endanger health, but principally when conducted incorrectly. Um, and to add, added to this was some moral alarm about the possibility of citizens, and especially children, witnessing slaughter um, and about the carriage of uncovered car carcasses uh, through the streets. So to be a nuisance, a slaughterhouse then had to affect others or threaten to affect others in specific ways. And i just give an example of a, of a related business that kind of gives the idea uh, um, quite well. So in 1856, the sanitary officers um, inspected bone, bone boilers after there was some complaint of smell, um, but they concluded they couldn't smell the bone boiling from the street, so therefore it didn't constitute a nuisance. So even though when you went into the factory, it absolutely stank, uh, you know, not enough of it was pouring out into the neighborhood to constitute a nuisance. Um, the exception to this dominant view of slaughterhouses as creating environmental nuisances was a single quite interesting report from the chief sanitary inspector at the time in 1857 uh, who'd recently assumed the new duties around inspecting meat um, and is concerned about uh, a disease that he likened to consumption that's happening in cattle, which we probably could uh, confirm is, it probably was tuberculosis, um, which becomes is evidently a big problem um, in the 
in the later part of the 19th century. And he writes to the council that, quote, it is a question whether this consumption in cattle might not be infectious to the human being, the same as glanders in the horse, which is attended with immediate death. And then suggesting that it's, it's a good idea uh, not to necessarily allow the sale of meat of, from these animals. This is not pursued, and he seems to be a lone voice in Dublin suggesting that there's other zoonotic diseases that people ought to be worried about, zoonosis being a disease that goes from animals to humans. Um, so up to 1865, I'd argue you have a clear understanding of the slaughterhouse as an environmental contaminant, uh, the nuisance from which should be minimized. Some think they should be removed, um, but all agree they should be inspected and regulated. So towards the end of the period, there's a huge amount of vigilance uh, around inspection and also around the detection, increasing vigilance on detection of diseased meat. Um, so as said, at the start, there's around 100, uh, 110 slaughterhouses, 80 of them usually in use, and they're inspected each about two times a month. Um, uh, by contrast, dairy yards are hardly mentioned. Uh, they don't appear in the minutes. They are certainly not routinely inspected. And in fact, I was unable to find a specific mention of a nuisance of a dairy yard uh, at all in this period, um, although there's minute books missing, so um, that may not be entirely accurate. Um, and I assume that some of the complaints of manure heaps uh, relate to dairy yards, even if the dairy yard is not necessarily mentioned. There's no suggestion uh, that they might spread disease uh, via milk, uh, which is not surprising. There's no suggestion that they are inappropriate to the city. There's no powers given to the, the council to license them, to regulate them in any way. Um, they're essentially a low priority. And it's not really until the next period that the first serious court case over nuisance uh, from a dairy yard is actually pursued. Okay, so in the interim, uh, we have a, I love this cartoon of Rinderpest that someone did, uh, um, and, uh, uh, which is cattle plague and cholera, um, and we could add to that uh, smallpox in the 1870s. Um, and in the context of particularly cattle plague and cholera, germ ideas of disease begin to be discussed and make occasional appearances in the Public Health Committee's own discussions. But they are first, again, discussed in the context of meat um, and not in, in the context of milk. And although many dairy cattle are being viewed uh, certainly towards the end of this period as being highly diseased and it's routinely accepted that many of them have pleuropneumonia. Um, there's only the beginning of dairy yard inspections and the, the city council's powers in this area continue to be, um, continue to be very limited. Um, the cattle plague, uh, just briefly, this is a, a cartoon uh, from Punch looking at the dithering, much governmental dithering over what to do about the cattle plague. Um, it arrives in Britain uh, in 1865, and effectively uh, there are a couple of things that are thought to be outbreaks in Ireland that are pretty much almost immediately stamped out, um, and it never really takes hold in Ireland. It kills uh, several hundred thousand cattle in Britain and is a big economic cost, but it really doesn't impact in terms of actual animals killed in, in Ireland. So in this period, we begin to see more discussions of diseased meat, which bring in germ ideas to some degree. And these are clearly affected by the cattle plague um, and uh, by the report of the commission uh, in the aftermath of the cattle plague. Um, so I'll just give one example um, from Charles Cameron, who is the city analyst and one of the medical officers of health. Uh, in September of 1866, he produces a lengthy report on the issue of diseased meat, and he focuses on whether or not um, some substance might be circulating through the animal that would cause an animal that, uh, that's flesh, doesn't actually look particularly bad, but to be unwholesome to eat. And he cites uh, the Cattle Plague Commission's uh, investigations, and particularly uh, Lionel Beale, who did microscopic examinations of, of diseased cattle. Um, and he consults other medical men um, who claimed, uh, and he claims that their opinions were, quote, 
strongly of the opinion that the flesh of an animal suffering from any kind of blood poison cannot be wholesome. So the idea is that there's anything that might be circulating around the body of the animal could certainly make the, the body of the animal uh, uh, not good for eating, whether or not it makes it causes you to have disease. Um, and he seeks also the opinions of veterinarians, um, who he will soon find himself in conflict with. Uh, nonetheless, no firm stance on the issue is reached, um, and Cannon continue, continues, excuse me, for a while at least, to think that certain diseases, such as pleuropneumonia, um, might be limited to, uh, to parts of the body at particular stages, and therefore other parts of the body would be okay for eating. Um, so for example, only a month earlier, he had passed an animal as fit for food, despite it having some signs of pleuropneumonia. It was clear when it was alive that it was sick, um, but once it had been slaughtered, uh, quote, the lungs and pleura were so lightly affected that I considered its flesh to be perfectly wholesome. So the issue was not exactly whether the disease was contagious, because it was clear that it was contagious amongst cattle, but whether there was evidence of something having reached the parts of the animal's body that were to be consumed. And this is variously described as poison or, uh, or um, virus, usually. Um, and Cameron's views are also affected uh, by his understanding of cholera, which makes its appearance in 1866. Um, and uh, in the case of cholera, he has clearly accepted the idea of its transmissibility by water, but not a clear notion of what is actually being transmitted. So he variously refers again to the transmission of poisons and of viruses. Um, so for example, in October of 1866, um, he examines the water from the ship Olive, which has arrived from Liverpool, containing two people who later die of cholera. Um, and uh, he finds the water to be heavy with organic matter with the appearance of, quote, common ditch water. And he warns that, quote, ships are the great carriers of the virus of epidemic disease, disease of foreign origin. And he further goes on to investigate the pump water of the city, which is clearly inspired by John Snow's work in London, um, and eventually to declare the people that they actually ought to close the pumps uh, during any cholera epidemic and insist in the next cholera epidemic, uh, because the, the Vartry water scheme is not complete at this stage, insist that people drink only uh, water from the Vartry water scheme. So far, however, germ ideas, preliminary though they are, are very much focused on the healthfulness of flesh derived from diseased animals. So the question centers on whether something would circulate in the body. Um, and uh, so we have, for example, his, his investiga Cameron's investigation of another carcass, um, which he condemns, saying, quote, where fetid and highly purulent matter exists in the lungs of an animal, it is impossible, but the blood which flows through them must absorb a portion of the offensive matter and carry it through the whole system. The impact of these concerns around diseased meat and also around the dominant view of the propagation of cholera through miasma was to intensify slaughterhouse surveillance and to increase interest in removing them from the city once and for all. Evidence of this is seen when the Public Health Committee requests that Cameron report to them on, quote, the nuisance and danger to health arising from the slaughterhouses in the city which, with suggestions as to the removal and the establishment of a public abattoir. And Cameron also takes a trip to Paris to see the public abattoirs there. Um, and despite all this work, however, um, the council a year later appear resigned to the existence of the slaughterhouses, having encountered quite a bit of resistance from butchers. Um, and uh, they comment, quote, the existence of these establishments in the heart of a populous city must always be regarded as a source of many sanitary and social evils and as productive of, eff of uh, effects on the health of the community, which are at most, which at most may be merely mitigated and which cannot be prevented. Um, and a few weeks later, they are noting that slaughterhouses are, quote, opposed not only to health, but also to civilization. Um, but they've pretty much resigned themselves to their existence. Um, and 
to simply regulating them. So here, in essence, we're beginning to see that the reform and removal of slaughterhouses is about much more than public health, but also about perceptions of types of businesses um, and uh, particularly a kind of disgust around around slaughter. And it, give, it gives us some insight, I suppose, as to the explanation as to why dairy yards only feature in a limited way. And just to emphasize that point, in the five years between 1866 and 1871, so that's when the Public Health Committee, called Public Health Committee, is instituted, um, they oversaw 13,546 inspections of slaughterhouses and 290 of dairy yards. So uh, there's, there's maybe one quarter uh, or fewer slaughterhouses as compared to dairy yards, uh, but they're inspecting the slaughterhouses. You know, there's somebody walking around into multiple slaughterhouses a day, every day of the week, and the dairy yards uh, only if someone complains. This is despite the fact that one of the biggest nuisance cases they dealt with during this time period was a series of filthy dairy yards along one wall of the city's hospital one of the city's hospitals. Milk is at this stage being routinely sampled for adulteration, but only from the point of view of fraudulent practice rather than from the point of view of disease tra transmission. By the 1870s, however, a very small shift is beginning. In 1871, I've noticed the first reference to a disease in milk, and this is really relating to foot and mouth disease, um, where Kamen reports that foot and mouth disease is presently rife in the dairy stock of the city, um, but that animals being pastured outside the city, uh, they can't do much about it. But he claims that people ought to be warned that they should boil milk uh, to avoid contracting the disease. He claims that pigs fed on the milk had died and that people had developed, quote, ulcerated mouths. Uh, by 1872, the numbers of dairy yard inspections are increasing. So in January of that year, for example, they inspected uh, slaughterhouses 181 times and dairy yards 500, uh, sorry, 58 times. Um, and they also have, at this point, hired a special milk inspector uh, to accommodate the Adulteration of Food Act. Um, in the cholera epidemic of 1872, we also see a response that suggests a combination of approaches, including the acceptance of some aspects of a germ theory of disease. So uh, they're, they're recognizing the idea of the disease as contagious through water and through excreta uh, ejecta from patients. Um, but uh, And they particularly advocate, as I mentioned before, using only through water. And they, they shut down pumps um, in an effort to prevent uh, water transmission uh, of the disease. Um, but they continue the usual measures of suppressing nuisances, uh, scavenging streets, and flushing drains. So the idea that the cattle market are not part of their problem is indicated by the fact uh, that I'll just mention briefly that there is no discussion of the cattle plague in the Public Health Committee's minutes, aside from Cameron's discussion of how it relates to his views of the carcasses of, um, of diseased cattle that he's seeing. Um, it's essentially an economic problem at this stage, not a public health problem. Um, and by this stage, we've already got the poor law veterinary inspectors dealing with uh, diseases in cattle and the list of uh, kind of uh, registered diseases the way there are registered diseases for humans it is growing to include pleuropneumonia and foot and mouth. Okay, so um, I've just talked about that. So in this period, the last period I'll talk about, dairy yards and milk are becoming more important, and it's particularly uh, the question of pleuropneumonia um, that seems to generate more discussion around uh, the issue of disease in milk, and also Cameron's uh, elucidation of a typhoid outbreak um, that seems to have been transmitted through milk. Um, so I'd argue that this 
phase is where dairy yards start to become a focus, where there's a shift in thinking about disease as appearing in living beings rather than just in death and decay. And also the beginning of the idea that Dublin's animals uh, are part of a larger population of cattle, in a sense, in which can contagious disease might spread. So in particular, pleuropneumonia is a disease of, of greatest concern. It's prevalent in dairy cattle, and there are debates over whether both meat and milk from infected animals um, ought to be safe or is not safe to consume. And these get concerns, as I've said, are reinforced by Karen's dealings with typhoid transmission through milk. Um, so if we look at pleuropneumonia first, um, and again, just I, I just mentioned the poor law unions are dealing with diseased cattle, um, and this brings them into conflict with the Dublin City Council because they are uh, in charge of people report to them if they have a diseased cow in one of the districts, and they go and inspect the cow, and if the cow is deemed not so diseased as to not be uh, suitable for food, they allow it to be slaughtered, sold to a butcher. Uh, and then the meat turns up in the butcher shops, and Cameron declares it to be unfit for human food, and then the butcher gets very annoyed um, because he claims he's legitimate, legitimately purchased this meat and it's been passed by a veterinary inspector. Um, so this is where the market world of living animals comes into obvious intersection with the world of carcasses um, and the issue of the city, the jurisdiction of the city borough versus the greater area from which the animals are actually coming. Um, and uh, there's a great... Um, cartoon uh, from Zaz, which is this satirical magazine I quite like, showing um, uh, first the, um, the uh, under the surveillance of the Metropolitan Officer, uh, the Dublin Metropolitan Police Officer, um, say, you know, pointed the finger at the farmer, this is a diseased cow, you can't sell it, um, you know, and uh, they're uh, selling the diseased cow uh, to a sneaky looking butcher who's surely going to cut it up and, and hang it for sale. Um, so this issue of, um, a, of whether diseased meat from certain animals is suitable for food or not uh, keeps coming up. And finally, the Public Health Committee in 1877 decide they want to solve this problem with an inquiry. So they decide to send a circular to vets and doctors with the following questions. First, uh, quote, do you consider the flesh of oxen killed while suffering from contagious pleuropneumonia fit food for man? And second, if you consider that such flesh may be used under certain circumstances, please state whether or not it is fit for food in the second stage of the disease. And this is the stage where the lungs become enlarged and full of, uh, essentially, of pus. Um, the emphasis is still on the meat, um, but this does actually spur other groups into action, uh, namely the Dublin Sanitary Association that's not always in agreement with the Public Health Committee um, and the cattle traders. So the Dublin Sanitary Association produces its own report, which includes, uh, as one of its experts, uh, Grimshaw, who is the uh, register um, and again, the focus is on whether or not some disease matter might be present throughout the body. They conclude that epidemic pleuropneumonia is a contagious, quote, febrile affection. Um, and they claim that lung inflammation is just one symptom. So that there's other things going on in the body um, and the disease indicating the disease is spread throughout. And quote, the virus of the disease being of the nature that met with, of that met with in contagious zymotic diseases and being capable of communication by inoculation of the body pervades more or less all parts of the animal's body. And so as a result, they condemn both meat and milk of the animals affected as unfit for human food. Now their concern is not necessarily germs, but the idea that meat and milk might become rapidly more putrid. 
So they can't prove that there's any germs that you might ingest that would make you sick, um, but they suggest that the, the meat tends to decay and the milk will probably do the same. They all acknowledge that there's no evidence of people getting sick from the meat, but claim that, quote, the most that can be said is that no one has complained. So they say the lack of evidence is no evidence to suggest it's not harmful. Um, not surprisingly, the cattle traders don't agree, um, and they produce their own report, um, which is supported by three doctors in, in uh, Trinity. And they claim that, in fact, the disease is localized to the lungs and that in the early stages, uh, it's perfectly okay to eat the flesh. Um, and they say, quote, uh, no difference can be observed in the flesh of the animal by the most experienced butcher or the most skillful chemist, microscopist, or pathologist. Um, and they claim that actually you can't inoculate animals and produce the disease. And as a result, it, it can't be classed um, as a, um, it can't be suggested that disease matter is throughout the body. Um, and they also make a link to cholera. Uh, quote, it has been argued that impure water has been long used by many communities without the production in some persons of injurious results, and that no scientific person would be found hardy enough to advocate on such grounds the use of such water, and that such is the condition of this question. But the cases, however, are not parallel because disease has been frequently traced with certainty to the use of impure water, which is not the fact with regard to pleuronomonic meat. Cameron thinks otherwise, and he uh, takes a survey of uh, medical men in the city and claims that Dublin has a, an increase in boils, anthracis, and flenoms, uh, which uh, he claims are the result from the use of flesh of animals affected with pleuronomonia. So he puts the blame squarely on the North Dublin Poor Law Union for allowing diseased cattle to be purchased by butchers. Um, Beyond the spat with the poor law guardians, the plurum pneumonia debate also seems to have generated greater concern about dairy yards. Um, in 1877, dairy yards are now receiving the same, if not more, vigorous inspection um, as slaughterhouses. So we have, uh, in, for example, uh, one month, 713 slaughterhouse inspections and 772 dairy yard inspections. Um, and there are repeated prosecutions for keeping your dairy yard uh, filthy. This new interest in dairy yards and public health Health is underscored by Cameron's investigation of an outbreak of typhoid fever in milk. And this is really, in, he does this investigation in 1879. There have been similar investigations in England in the early 1870s, um, and which he, one presumes he's read about. He traces the outbreak to a dairy yard in which the dung heap included human wastes uh, because there is no privy um, alongside cattle ones and quote, if the day had been windy, the matter from the dung heap could not fail to be blown about the yard and into the milk vessels. And he finds that the owner of this yard is himself sick with typhoid and suggests that this is the source of the disease. Um, the potential for transmission of disease through milk is actually noted uh, then by legislation and bylaws which disallow the sale of milk from diseased cattle for human food and also the sale of milk from a dairy yard when any of the workers in living in the house or the workers in the dairy yard are diseased. Um, but nonetheless, we haven't lost sight of slaughterhouses, and they're still the first animal businesses to be acted against whenever possible. So under the new Public Health Act in 1878, areas can be declared unhealthy, and the first areas they target are areas around uh, slaughterhouses where there are multiple slaughterhouses, because when you can declare an area unhealthy, you can raise the buildings, and then those buildings being raised, uh, the people will have to reapply for slaughterhouse licenses somewhere else, and they can refuse them. Um, so it's viewed as a possible way of getting rid of huge areas of slaughterhouses. Um, OK, so just uh, to um, conclude, 
by 1880, how would the Public Health Committee or the concerned member of the public uh, with sanitary ideas have viewed cows vis-a-vis uh, -vis the public health? Um, and I'd argue that now we're beginning to get a concept of the cows as a kind of herd interacting with one another, um, where the, the city's cows are now viewed as part of that larger, um, larger herd of animals. The idea that diseases are passing among the cattle and that market cattle are affecting what turns up in butcher shops and milk shops. And there's a new focus on dairy yards, um, as I've said, which I think is highlighted in a comment in the 1880 sewerage and drainage inquiry, um, where a dairy yard is described in terms like a moral calamity that were previously reserved uh, for slaughterhouses. And I'll just read the quote, it's a little bit long. The demoralizing effects of these dairies and yards I consider to be worse than their physical injurious effects in consequence of the abominable smell periodically occurring. The lowest class in the city flocked round them and lived near them, and about those places I would be afraid to go out after nightfall, and on Saturday nights the place is a pandemonium. No person, drinking milk is apparently, you know, uh, an exciting activity. No person that could afford to have better would live in such places. They really are moral pests as well as physical pests. So to return to my, my questions that I mentioned at the start, how did scientific ideas affect public health policy and practice? Um, and I'd say that there's an awareness of ideas around germs, but they're slowly added to existing ideas about environment and health. And those are those are uh, would be replicated certainly in, uh, in other spheres. Um, and the acceptance of these ideas, I would argue, is very much affected by other ideas, such as ideas about moral hazards and social evils that are often linked to the slaughterhouse and not often linked to places like dairy yards. Um, and in terms of how ideas about animals affect public health policy and practice. Um, I hope I've suggested um, that this perceived boundary between humans and animals is seen as a disease boundary. And even when some diseases are known to cross it, the assumption is always that, that an animal disease is not necessarily going to generate a human disease. And this would be borne out largely from experience. Um, but, uh, but it does serve as a barrier to accepting that there are some diseases which can pass between. Um, nonetheless, ideas from human medicine and veterinary medicine do pass back and forth, um, and this would be suggested by Cameron's thinking on cholera and cattle plague and pleuropneumonia, where he's obviously mixing up, uh, or not, not confusing, but, but borrowing ideas from different disease concepts. Um, and there's also evidence that a kind of moral or hierarchy of animal businesses is very hard to budge, um, even in the face of evidence. So slaughterhouses continue to be a priority um, as milk and dairy yards very slowly emerge as a public health hazard. And I suppose in a broad sense, I think uh, the new approach generated by cattle plague is really augmented by the issue of, of pleuropneumonia. Um, and the, the effect is to bring a greater focus on living animals as vectors of disease. So I'd, I'd argue that this shift towards living animals is maybe uh, also important to later embracing of germ theory. And I suppose if I was going to look at something in future, um, I, it would be an obvious extension to look at bovine uh, tuberculosis. Um, in the 1870s, you see a lot of excuses being made about Dublin's death rate really relating to respiratory disease. And when tuberculosis uh, uh, bacteria is discovered and linked with, um, with the disease known as consumption, um, and the fact that there is a, a similar disease in cattle, um, this becomes a, a, a very major concern. Um, again, the focus starts off with meat um, and ends up with milk, um, because it, 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 it sort of repeated urgings by, um, by doctors that, in fact, the milk is more contagious than the meat. Um, 
So I suppose um, I would conclude by saying I think pleurum pneumonia actually could be viewed as a, a, a point in which germ theory is starting to be most integrated into a public health view of cows in Dublin. And I'll stop there. Thank you.